0: Hello, and welcome to Sky Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. We release weekly AI news coverage and also occasional interviews, such as today. I am Andrey Krenkov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab, and the host of this episode. In this interview episode, we'll get to hear from one of the authors of a recent article, Working with Robots in a Post-Pandemic World. Professor Matt Bean. Professor Matt Bean does field research on work involving robots to help us understand the implications of intelligent machines for the broader world of work. Bean is an assistant professor in the technology management program at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a digital fellow of Stanford's Digital Economy Lab. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode, Professor
1: Bean. Happy to join you.
0: Alrighty, So, uh, yeah, our focus here will be your article, Working Robots in a Post-Pandemic World, which just came out a few weeks ago. Before we dive into any details about it, uh, maybe I can just let you go ahead and provide a quick summary of sort of overall what the article is about and what are its high level conclusions.
1: Sure. So I'll uh, I'll start with the high level conclusion, actually, which is that Firms now uh, that that are in our sample, at least, and they they seem this, this finding seems to generalize as I've talked with others across other industries, are facing a lot more uncertainty and volatility than they are used to. So uh, our particular research program is covering e-commerce, for example, uh, you know fulfillment warehouses, but also package or parcel. Um, Uh, Transport and um, the entire world on many dimensions is is really spinning, and so traditional ways of appraising investments in automation are. Are just not applicable currently. Um, when firms are looking to make investments, the traditional calculus for uh, you know what um, makes for most value per dollar, both immediately and in the long run, are are thrown off kilter mostly because uh, of change. Uh, volatility uh, is is basically the enemy of automation. Really elaborate or complicated automation. So practically, firms are. Turning more is, of course, varies by firm, it varies by industry, but turning more towards automation that uh, we, we, um, we coined this term, we classify as plug and play. It has a certain uh, number, sort of a uh, set of characteristics, but the basic ones are uh, it's rapidly, you can uh, sort of buy it and have it delivered uh, rapidly and it can be repurposed rapidly. It's reconfigurable, it's modular and interoperable. Uh, highly modular and interoperable with currently available automation. Um, And it doesn't require a lot of training time. Uh, Another interesting piece, at least for us, is that it has a small physical footprint. So there are, are some automation that might meet all those other characteristics. But um, square footage in a facility that automates some sort of physical process is quite the scarce commodity. And uh, also some changes with respect to automation uh, footprint have implications for other, you know, sort of adjacent processes uh, that have automation, um, uh, you know, sort of involved in them. And, uh, Changes are not simple. Changes involve uh, bolting things into concrete or shearing bolts out of concrete, uh, moving power, air supplies, uh, redirecting uh, conduits and chutes, that kind of thing, Uh, all of which takes a fair amount of calories, time uh, and dollars and so on. So um, it's. Given the dynamism in the market and and so on right now, it's just become uh, much easier and more appropriate for businesses to invest in this kind of plug and play automation. That if a SKU changes next week, if a work process changes next week, um, we can uh, quickly repurpose those investments to serve the serve that changing demand. You know, a classic example I trot out in interviews now is a simple industrial uh, strength pump for moving fluids of various viscosity. There's no, I mean, there's a little bit of software on board. There are some sensors, but certainly no AI, nothing fancy. Um, And, but it could be used to nail polish, hand sanitizer, soup. Uh, You you know, you can go, uh, you can go on and on. And firms are needing to pivot that radically these days, some firms anyway. Uh, And so that pumps an extremely good investment. Anyway, that's uh, so that's the sort of core finding the 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 broad study obviously didn't we didn't intend to go studying the implications of a pandemic for automation. Uh, We started this study about a year and a half ago, maybe a little bit more. Uh, covering, now going on, eight uh, firms that are deploying AI-enabled robots for repetitive manual work uh, in warehousing almost exclusively, and then their customers. Um, and we're, ha- we're asking different questions. We're asking questions about um, when and how do firms and then frontline workers adapt particularly constructively to some discontinuous, qualitatively new automating technology? Um, it just so happened that we were in touch with these firms and these deployment sites uh, for a good year and a half, and then COVID came along. Uh, so we couldn't go visit those sites, we couldn't call them, we couldn't ask for more data without asking about the implications of COVID. It would be uh, it would be really inconsiderate not to. I mean, these are people we've come to know and like and trust, and vice versa. So uh, we just started to collect a lot of data along that along those lines and noticed consistent trends across firms of various sizes. And we've covered almost all geographies in the US, uh, different industries and the patterns were the same. So that was the impetus for writing up this piece for Sloan Management Review.
0: I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and is very interesting. Um, I think part of the motivation in the piece uh, starts out by noting that in other media articles such as The New York Times, Uh, Article robots welcome to take over as pandemic accelerates automation, kind of the intuitive story has been that because people need to uh, work remotely and because um, of the pandemic and different things, there will be an increase in automation, right, and more robotic adaptation and maybe even more AI driven robotics, wherever, you know, really advanced systems. So it sounds like your story here is that it's not necessarily the case that companies are being able to adapt very sophisticated, advanced robotics and replace existing procedures. More so it's these specific plug and play type uh, robots. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yes, that's true. That was always roughly true uh, before uh, COVID. So um, uh, we know already that, you know, um, especially from some of uh, Eric Brunielsen's recent work with some colleagues and the US Census, that it's, uh, you know, their finding was 1.3% of a uh, surveyed 800,000 800, plants in the US were using robots of any kind. Now, this is to say nothing about AI-enabled robots. So that's uh, probably 1.3% of that 1.3%. So this is an extremely uncommon technology, uh, and it's underproven, is what I would say. So, uh, and by underproven, I just mean it, it's it's uh, not reliable enough, simple enough uh, to implement at scale in a way that is. Uh, where the cost it's cost effective, uh, where it's a good investment for firms. Yet, and so um, it was always and somewhat sort of a, a, a for especially for larger firms. Many larger firms make repetitive bets on on under tech like this to to try it out to figure out where and how it might be useful. Uh, Co development projects uh, is one term that. in a a variety of disciplines is sort of an understood bucket for this kind of activity. Um, Right now, the the minute COVID hit, the the headwinds for those kinds of projects just became much stronger. They're still going on. We still have deployments to study. We still, you know, um, uh, amazingly, none of the firms, the vendors uh, in our sample have gone out of business yet or run out of funds. Uh, I expect that may happen, though, because um experimentation takes time, it takes resources, it takes physical square footage, and um, you, you know, for example, if you have a, a robotic system that is doing pick and place work, you know, sort of taking sample, you know, sort of um, sample goods out of a bin, undifferentiated sample goods and putting one of those in a box as it goes by on a conveyor, for example, that's a prototypical example. Uh, it's an amazing achievement to watch. I mean, just technically, it's it's uh, stunning that these systems can do this with any reliability, uh, anything approximating sort of industrial grade reliability. But setting that up requires um, stopping a traditional production line, right? So you have to take humans off of that line, set it up as a robotic experiment, essentially, which means, let's say, if you have 10 lines and you take one down, you've... Uh, essentially depress 10% of your product you know your production lines uh, or production capability, uh, at least for the time of that experiment, which probably will be say three to six months. Right now, if your demand has just quadrupled or octupled, uh, you, your, op- your operations people will never allow that. They will um, their job is to make sure that they deliver for the customer and taking down 10% or even 20 of your capacity to try out, um, uh, these are not my words, there's uh, some sort of science experiment. It's often how they're referred to. It's just, um, it's much, much harder to justify right now.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. So um, with AI and robotics, uh, of course, uh, often the story or uh, people have concerns about job loss, that robots and AI will replace human workers. And, you know, within a decade or, or even less, you know, uh, a lot of automation will come for human labor and jobs Mm -hmm. so i wonder yeah if you can expand on the implications of your findings before covid during covid for robotics uh, and human jobs
1: sure so a few caveats and then um i I can share some points so the, the main thing to say is that uh our we'll have more to say on this question uh the the broader sort of implications of uh AI enabled robots for work and employment and so on in subsequent papers. So uh, stay tuned is the main message. I can I can start to speak uh, at Ground Zero, which is COVID and this paper that is published right now. The clear implication the sort of uh, the the concomitant finding with uh, with what I've said already around plug and play automation is that human flexibility is more valuable now. Uh, than it was before COVID. Um, There's a lot made out of trying to create more social distance within these facilities and that is important and it is hard and it does make it on some levels attractive to try to automate people out of a process to avoid contact, right? To avoid uh, transmission of the virus. Practically, that is more achieved with plexiglass and cardboard than it is with any new kinds of automation or just extending the length of conveyors just to separate people a bit more. Uh, But um, uh, that that those kind of effects are dwarfed by the need to get uh, to to cope with change and uncertainty in the work. And the way you do that is to instead of try to automate in a building is just fill that building with people. So I have a number of organizations in our study. Now, these are consumer uh, consumers of robotics, sort of uh, mid to large scale um, uh, uh, fulfillment type organizations that have stood up greenfield sites, you know, new buildings in certain geographies or are repurposing old buildings. And they have scrapped their automation plans entirely, and have just said, "Look, um, add twenty percent more people to that building. Yes, it's more costly. Um, yes, it's harder to manage. These things are all have costs associated with them. But um, we can tell people. People are exceptionally good at coming up with new ways of handling surprise, new products, um, adapting to change. Basically, um, and they are. You can also um, if you. Do a good job managing a team, managing an organization that sort of fills a building, um, you can motivate them to work harder to meet some new challenging goal. You know, a lot of us in very different ways are, you know, this is an extraordinary challenge, this pandemic, but we're seeing some of the best of what people can do for each other uh, in their work because of that challenge. And uh, we've seen that in a number of facilities as well. So this is a long way around to say, in the short run, for people. And jobs, there's more opportunity, not less. There's more jobs that need to be filled. And within a job, if you or I got a frontline job in one of these facilities, that facility now is investing less than it used to in complicated automation that will sort of wipe out entire work processes or at least radically reconfigure things such that you don't need as many people. So you or I not only have more job opportunity uh, at the front line, but we have more opportunity to be valuable to innovate in a process, to note some way in which it could be improved, uh, to learn more about the functioning of the building, to connect more with other people. So a highly automated process is one where the connections between humans are physically distant and socially distant. Um, That's what a highly automated process looks like. You don't get to talk much with each other. You don't get much to socialize or on the sort of learning side, you don't get much to sort of notice things as a collective, like chat about how this might be improved, see new opportunities. And now there's just a lot more of that. So um, in a weird way, COVID has provided more, uh, and, you know, uh, more job opportunity, more opportunity for learning and development, but certainly more opportunity for work uh, than there was before.
0: I see. Yeah. So that's, I guess, kind of important or at least um, useful to be aware that even though intuitively you could sort of see how people might lose jobs and be replaced with automation that isn't susceptible to the disease, it, you show in this uh, study that, in fact, in the short term, during COVID, in response to the pandemic, uh, that's not the case. And uh, primarily, it seems to be smaller plug and play systems are what people can use and the larger, more advanced, more complicated things are not what you rely on in an emergency situation. And I wonder just to ask you, um, is the conclusion sort of that broadly, when we have these sort of crises, that's what we can take away uh, about automation and the use of robotics?
1: Uh, that's interesting um, that's an interesting potential implication that deserves further study it's I think that stands to reason though right um, wh- uh, there there's an entire literature on how um, organizations groups and societies respond to crisis disa- you know things like disaster um, or massive opportunities right so um, let's go to the moon or there's a gold rush across the United States. Um, and so on. And uh, the consistent finding across that body of work, as I think about it, is um, uh, complexity and rigidity in the way you organize, in the technologies that you use, is kind of the enemy because there's a lot that you need to learn really fast and you need to be adapt- able to adapt, uh, i.e., change process, change personnel, change skills, uh, given uh, ch- rapid change. Um, And uh, so, yes, I think that's, uh, uh, you know, our findings are a variant of that, just a bit more fine-grained set of findings around the implications for automating technologies. Um, But as long as that volatility is there, I think um, we're going to see a lot more stories uh, about, and a lot more data about humans playing a really important role around, um, you know, adapting and finding new ways to handle things.
0: I see. Yeah. So uh, as usual, I don't underestimate humans and how important they are still, even as we do make various advances.
1: That, that, are, there's a quick important um, thing to add on there, though, which is that I think we are all, you know, it, the, the intuition that AI enabled robotics will at some point in the relative mid or even longer term, somewhat longer term, be able to do repetitive manual work in highly uncertain and dynamic conditions at high reliability. Um, Having seen what I've seen, I can't speak in detail about these firms, but um, uh, having seen their deployments, um, I've been absolute, I mean, I follow these kinds of things as closely as I can. a number of them are doing things that say five years ago would have been written off as not worth pursuing um, because it's just too challenging. So, the progress you know under the hood close to the ground is pretty stunning um when you show an example to someone you know look this this robot can handle these perfume samples uh with 99.96% reliability um uh, you know when you change the lighting when you change uh the orientation uh when you change things like temperature uh and so on um that doesn't look amazing to a layperson but to me it is amazing uh, and so i think it's a bad idea to underestimate these effects. Um, it's just that they're not here yet. Um, it's going to be quite some time before these things are cost effective at scale.
0: Yes, that's a good point as well. And I actually want to touch on a related piece of work cited in the piece uh, from Eric. Uh, Eric, I actually
1: don't know about your name.
0: <laughs> uh from Eric uh the, the um, paper, The Productivity J-Curve, How uh, Intangibles Complement General Purpose Technologies. So yeah, I also wanted to quickly touch on, it sounds like the general kind of story is that even as you get these new technologies, uh, like these AI-enabled robots, even when you have a proof of concept and you have initial results, it'll still take a large amount of investment and a fair amount of time for the firms to be able to use them effectively and to really get the most out of them. So at first, it'll take you know, years to sort out how to best use them, and then there'll be kind of a big change. Is that a fair broad kind of uh, guesstimation of how we might see things?
1: It is both, uh, you know, all models are wrong. Some are useful. That is a useful model that is uh, deeply flawed um, in one way. So I'll, the utility is uh, there. We have studies going back, say, more than 100 years, but certainly 90 uh, or so showing that anytime time there's some qualitatively new form of automation that rolls along, um, it takes uh, You know, there's no um, sort of firm timescale, but it takes far longer to for it to find its ultimate or or a a very high um, sort of uh, maximum of utility for firms and so on. Much longer than anyone would expect. A lot more failure, uh, sometimes death, uh, certainly injury, uh, a lot more money involved in finding those maxima. Um, And yes, it's because everyone's trying to figure out where and how to use it. The classic example is the the electric dynamo. Um, it, it, it rolled around around the turn of the century, business started to try to incorporate it, but it took almost 25 years for firms to go from installing a single giant electric dynamo on the single camshaft in the middle of a factory that drove many, many belts that each went out to a separate piece of equipment, to a, attaching a small dynamo to each piece of equipment. Um, so, yes, that, that, that's, a, that's a sort of very generalizable finding. The key falsehood in there, uh, and this is where my work kind of complements Eric, is that it is necessarily true that someone figured that out with each of these new technologies far earlier than anybody else, either in whole or in part. So it's logically impossible that everyone simultaneously, 15 years later, discovered this single dynamo to single piece of equipment um, solution. Someone did it earlier. And it just took a while for that to diffuse. Uh, There are many reasons for that. But uh, the kind of work I do is to go out into the field. My prior study with robotic surgery was uh, the same, basically. Um, uh, Even right now, a good 15, 18 years after its introduction, uh, trainees are struggling to learn how to use the robotic surgical uh, system known as the da Vinci. Uh, And other robotic surgical systems as well, but a very few found new ways to train and learn how to use the system. It's just they're quite rare. They're isolated from one another. They don't recognize that they're doing anything innovative. Um, And so it's hard work to find them. That's the goal with our current study is to go out and to include a large number of companies, vendors in our sample and an even larger number of deployment sites to try to find individuals frontline workers and organizational practices or conditions that uh, lead to discontinuous early success compared to everybody else. Um, No one organization or individual is going to get everything right and do it all perfectly in the way that we would all recognize success 15 years later. But, you know, if you have a big enough sample size, you can find that positive needle in the negative haystack. Um, And so that's the way in which this sort of J-curve finding is accurate, but also obscures that, you know, um, success doesn't come from nowhere all at once.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Makes sense and uh, sounds very exciting to hear of your future research and what comes out there as far as seeing the early adopters who really make the best of what we have today, which, as you know, are some really impressive advancement in AI enabled robotics. So we have covered a good deal, I think, of what has been an article and some of the related uh, topics there. Uh, I guess I just have to ask you, is there anything uh, we haven't touched on that you think is worth noting uh, with respect to robot use post pandemic?
1: Um, I think it's, um, you know, I I suppose the thing to say is the the reason um, I got excited about this kind of study. I think the reason Eric is, I think the reason the vendors in our study and the organizations in our study are excited is that there are a lot of claims out there about the implications of these kinds of technologies, particularly the very advanced ones um, for work, employment, um, and so on. The sort of uh, the kind of society that we end up living in. Uh, and we have a lot of questions about Are these technologies being built, sold, deployed, consumed, used, modified in ways that uh, move us closer to a society that we would like or farther away um, or both in some cases? Um, And we just don't have a lot of good data about that. I mean, um, we're starting to, we're starting to get some interesting studies, but um, I think it's especially when these kinds of Questions have strong political implications where big decisions about funding, education, government, law, um, uh, and so on are being made uh, and have been made for the last decade absent this kind of data. I think. At least for me, it, it's um, this is the real motivation behind the work. And I, if there's one message I would hope to spread, it's that we should all try to get more data on what's actually going on in the ground, whether it's to do with design processes, processes through which these technologies are sort of sold to the market, to the open world, to, uh, the processes through which they're put to use, uh, and so on. Uh, these are going to be getting data on these processes will help us make actual informed, you know, do good informed social science, like build good theories about what's actually happening out there. But then also for politicians, for lawmakers, for business leaders, for technologists to make informed decisions about what the consequences will be of uh, these technologies. I think we, we need a lot more of that kind of work. Um, Obviously that, you know, we all say, you know, if you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I, this is this kind of work and getting this kind of data is why, you know, I do the work that I do. So of course I'm going to say something like this, but it does seem to me to be a serious gap and uh, making decisions without this information, you, all you have to go on are your assumptions uh, or an anecdote that you've heard about what's going on, not a systematic data set. So. Uh, I hope if there's anybody out there listening who feels the same way I do, uh, get involved, try to support a study. Um, if you want to be studied, uh, reach out. Um, uh, you know, uh, we just need to build a bigger tribe of people focusing on this kind of work so that we can make decisions that are more fact-based uh, and data-based than based on um, mental models that, uh, you know, they're based on a variety of things. Uh, science fiction we've seen, stories we tell and hear, uh, you know, you name it.
0: Absolutely. And as an AI researcher and someone focused on robotics, uh, where I see these stories all the time and you know, people mention them, I'm very glad to see that you are doing this on the ground study and looking at the actual implications and, and collecting that. So on that note, uh, we can go ahead and finish up. Thank you again, Professor Bean, for joining us on this episode.
1: Happy to join you. Really appreciated the opportunity.
0: And thank you, listeners, for listening to our interview for this episode of Scanet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find articles on similar topics to today's and subscribe to our weekly newsletter of similar ones at scannetoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a rating if you like this show. Be sure to tune in to our future
1: episodes.